All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the Scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles. As we're doing that, I also want to echo uh, what Terrell said. Man, I was so encouraged by the serve huddle yesterday. Thank you, everybody that showed up. I know some of you couldn't be here, um, but we are, we're just so thankful. God is growing the core group of people that are investing in Grace Bible Church. We're thankful for you. We feel like the Lord is preparing us for, for new things and bigger things to help people to grow in their relationship with Jesus, to introduce people to Jesus for the first time. So it's just a fantastic meeting, and I want to just specifically bless the staff the ministry directors, the leaders of our church. I work with a phenomenal team. Uh, Our elders, our deacons, our staff members uh, are doing such a great job. And so I just want to give a hand to them and thank them for their ministry. Thank you guys. Hugely encouraged yesterday. Um, We're going to now look at the scriptures in Leviticus. So open up your Bibles to your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. It's a third book In the Old Testament, we're in Leviticus chapter 23. Again, we've called the series Fasting and Feasting. So we're reclaiming the Lent season. We do Lent differently around here. Some people do Lent as a a way to fast and punish themselves to impress God. We don't believe that. We believe that God loves us in Jesus. And because of that, we want to reflect that in our daily rhythms of life. And so Jesus talks about fasting as that ache and longing, that hurt that not wanting to eat, that not feeling okay that you have when you long and ache for Jesus. So the discipline of fast is, is recognizing that reality. Man, I'm, I'm longing for everything to be right and to be face-to-face with Jesus. So I'm going to set aside a discipline, right? I might skip coffee for this 40-day period. I might like skip Netflix. I might set aside some of my habits that are covering up that ache. They're covering up that longing I feel for Jesus, and I might set those aside, and that would be the biblical gospel-centered version of fasting, where you say, I'm just going to go without this for a little while, not forever, you know? Coffee's fine, food's fine, I'll come back to it later, but for a while, just to recognize the ache, to sit in the ache, and to say, Jesus, I need you, you're my only hope. To spend more time in prayer, more time in devotion to him. And in the traditional schedule of fasting during the Lent, the lengthening of days in the spring, Uh, traditionally people would then celebrate on Sundays, feast with God's people. And so we were like, this year, let's study the Old Testament feasts. Let's look back at all the parties that God set up. And it's really helping me to enjoy Leviticus more because instead of focusing on all the weird passages, we're focusing on the parties, okay? Uh, So if you don't know, if you're new to your Bible, Leviticus is where a lot of the hard stuff is. Uh, But we're just focusing on chapter 23 where God says, I want you to have some parties, I want you to have some food. I want you to celebrate my goodness to you. So this week, we're looking at the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is all about a countdown. It's a countdown of seven weeks. It's about anticipation. Can you remember counting down to something big in your life? Have you ever had something you were waiting for, you were looking forward to, a vacation? I can remember counting down the days and the weeks to my my marriage, to our first child being born, to other important events. I can remember counting down the days and weeks to when we planted this church and like, wow, we we made it, right? Uh, Just talking to Hunter, our administrator, and her fiance, John, they have a little app on their phone that is counting down the days until their wedding this spring, 55 days. It almost lines up with the, the seven weeks, right? There's this anticipation that God's people would feel. They would count from the rescue, the Passover, forward to the next party, where God would show up once again and remind them that he's going to take care of them. 
And so it's the season of anticipation. It's a counting season. Uh, in English, we say weeks. The Hebrew is Shavuot. Probably not saying that right, but close enough. Shavuot, which means weeks. The Greek word is 50. And so I'm going to say the Greek word translated into another word that you'll recognize. It's Pentecost. Have you heard that before? Pentecost? So that's really common in Christian tradition and in Christendom uh, because it's a big event in Acts chapter 2. We'll come to that at the end of the sermon. So Pentecost means 50. We'll see in the text it's 49 days from this day and it's 50 days from the other day. And so it's both the, the festival of the 49 days, it's also the festival of 50 days. That confused me like crazy when I was first studying it, but I finally figured it out. They're counting from two different days, okay? You remember that last week when we studied the festival of first fruits, it was the day after the Sabbath. So there's a distinction between the Sabbath day and the day after the Sabbath. So let's read the text. Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 15. We'll read 15 through 22. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of a new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation or gathering. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God." As we've seen continually through this series, when we look back at the Old Testament and we see these shadows, these projections that will be fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We're seeing that again this week. It's a declaration of God's lordship over our life. It's a declaration of his provision. It's another agricultural feast. It's a countdown from the first fruits of the beginning of a harvest to the continuing harvest, 49, 50 days into the spring and then summer season. And so it's this continued acknowledgement that we feast, we party. Why? Because of God's gracious provision. Because God is good to us. Because God takes care of us. So we read the, the Scripture every week, even the weird parts of the Old Testament, because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It all testifies to God's goodness. It all speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So let me pray that His Spirit would help us to see Him and hear Him this morning. God, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that your spirit would come and open our ears, our hearts, our minds to receive your truth. We need you. We cannot do this on our own. This is not just a book, but this is a place where you want to speak to us. So help us take a posture of listening, and we pray that your spirit would awaken our hearts to the goodness of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I say this a lot, and I apologize for saying this too much if it comes up, but this was a really hard one to prepare for. There's, there's so much 
Uh, and so as I reflect on this, thinking about all the possible directions we could go with this Feast of Weeks or Feast of Pentecost, I recognize that our Bible is a rich book. I mean, we could study it and study it and study it. I've been reading and studying it for over 30 years, and there's, there's just always more, right? Um, so if you were doing a sermon, you could maybe do a completely different direction on this because there's just a lot here. Uh, so I'm going to try to focus on a few essential pieces, but encourage you to do further study. Like there's more to read, there's more to study. It was really hard leaving a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, so to speak. There's just more that I wanted to talk about. Um, and so three big ideas that we're going to cover. Number one, kind of talking about what this feast is, and it's seven weeks of first fruits. We're just going to stay in Leviticus 23 for the first point. What is the feast? Seven weeks of first fruits. It starts from the first fruits we studied last week. But this is actually another first fruits festival, because if you think about it, as you're growing things, you go throughout the year, there's this crop, and then this crop, and then this crop, right? So last week was the first fruits of barley, the next one's the first fruits of wheat. Um, and so it's just seven weeks of first fruits, seven weeks of abundance. The second point is we're going to then go back a little farther into Exodus and focus on seven weeks of Exodus. The time period actually coincides with the giving of the law after the Exodus. That's interesting. And then finally, we'll see the fulfillment in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, the most famous Pentecost passage in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, seven weeks of resurrection. Seven weeks after the resurrection, okay? So number one, seven weeks of first fruits. Seven weeks of first fruits. Leviticus 23, we're still there. It's page 101 in the Black Bibles. If y'all haven't found it and you want to grab one of those Black Bibles there, uh, just to review it again, last week it was first fruits of the barley harvest. So it's like just the beginning of the spring. It was right after Passover. And we talked about how we can relate in our world right now. It's starting to get warm. We've enjoying, uh, been enjoying being outside and just enjoying the kind of new life. We're seeing little buds on trees and little flowers starting to pop up. New grass is growing, right? It's new life springing up. In the Israeli culture, the first thing they could eat that would pop up would be the barley. And then you count seven weeks from that, and the first fruits of the wheat harvest begins happening. So Pentecost, the festival of weeks, is another sort of first fruits. You probably heard me as I was reading. He said multiple times, this first fruits and that first fruits. They're enjoying the now leavened bread. So it's kind of a little farther into this agricultural blessing of first fruits, but it's a first fruits of a different crop. So uh, a sense is just week after week after week of first fruits. It's just more and more and more abundance, right? Their mood is improving. The sun is shining. More things are growing. Things are happening. They're excited. They're celebrating. So they're counting down the days, seven weeks in, to the harvest of man. God continues to provide. He is so good. He's taking such good work, uh, such good care of us. I grabbed a picture of a garden uh, to think through the reality that a lot of us, some of you grew up on a farm, some of you have a garden, but a lot of us as modern people don't really understand how all this agricultural stuff works. There's a distance, right? Uh, when I first started studying this, like I'm learning new things every week, I'm starting to realize that most of the feasts are oriented towards agriculture. Most of the feasts are oriented towards God providing for us and giving us food to eat. And as I was working on it this week, I was like, it seems like the application this week is going to be the same as the application last week. And, you know, I want to be more original than that. But sometimes God has to keep saying the same thing over and over again, right? 
Like sometimes God has to tell you and tell me again, no, no, really, be thankful that I'm feeding you. Like, like that's enough. Be grateful that I'm providing for you. And we want to say, no, 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 I have plenty of food. I don't need to thank God. No, you need to thank God. He has provided it for you. And so that's a really important application. Like I said, part of me is like, oh, I don't want to do the same one week after week. No, this is, this is a big deal. And I think part of it is because we don't live in an agricultural world any longer. Well, we still live in that same world. We just don't know how it works, right? Because we have a distance between us and the agricultural world, we miss it. But God is the one that makes things grow. We plant, we water, we sow. We have work to do, right? But God makes it grow. He's like, I'm the one that is providing for you. And he wants us to remember that. And he wants us to thank him for that. Um, So number one application, let's back up a little bit. Maybe you should grow a garden, right? (laughs) Like maybe you should learn a little more about how God has made the world. Um, If you're like me, it's a little discouraging. I kill avocados every year for like six street six straight years now. My wife was telling me, we were walking yesterday, and she's like, in the new heavens and the new earth, you'll have good avocados all the time, right? I'm like, yes, and Jesus will wipe the tears from my eyes. Ah, finally. Um, Or we could just move to Guatemala, where they have uh, avocados in their front yard. It's it's incredible. Like, Natalie just has avocados everywhere. They're just all over the place. Um, But anyway, that's the side thing. So number one, maybe try growing something. I'm serious about this. Try, try growing something. It'll teach you incredible things about how God has made the world and how God makes things grow. He gives us work to do. He tells us to weed. He tells us to water. He tells us to work. But he's the one that makes it grow. He, he says that again and again in the New Testament. Uh, secondly, throw another feast, right? This is just a party of abundance. This is a, we have food. This is awesome. Let's celebrate. And again, we don't, we're not farmers. Most of us are not farmers. Most of us don't know how to grow things, but we know how to eat, right? You could have a party. You could have a big meal. And once again, thank God for your food. As we said last week, praying that God would provide daily bread and then thanking God when he provides it. This is such an important and basic provision of our daily life. And then finally, we see a very specific application in Leviticus 23, verse 22. Look at this. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. That's like the extra stuff that pops up, right? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So they have very strict agricultural command here to care for the outsider, to care for the poor, to care for those that are struggling. What we are to do as the people of God is to say, God has provided for me, and I'm going to share a little bit of what I have with other people. That's just a basic discipline of being the people of God. And so here there are real specific instructions, right? And, and since we don't have a farm, maybe we don't apply it exactly like this, but it's a really good principle, principle of gleaning, right? We generally look back at the Old Testament and see two major principles, the principle of tithing, which is like, take, take a 10%, take your fringe, right? And give that to the poor and give some of that to the proclamation of God's word. And then here's another one that's an agricultural application of that. Like take an edge of your productivity and offer that over, right? Don't use up all of it, but leave some of the edges, the gleaning, the fringe. So maybe you're not a farmer, maybe you're a lawyer. And you could say, you know what? I'm going to set aside a few, work, uh, a few hours a week and do some pro bono work. Help the poor, help some struggling people. Uh, I know some folks that have benefited from that just the last few weeks. 
you can help people out, right? Uh, maybe you're a writer and you could s- spend a little bit of your week, a few hours, like helping people write on projects they're working on that are struggling in life. Maybe you're a teacher, you can tutor some people, right? Maybe uh, you work in some other area of your life and you can kind of just take a, an edge of your productivity, a, a gleaning, a, a piece of that, and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some of that over to, to struggling people. And the people of God have always done this kind of thing. Pray about ways that you could apply this creatively in your life, in your business, whatever your business may be. All right, seven weeks of first fruits. The next point is seven weeks of Exodus. Seven weeks of Exodus. Um, so this is really interesting. As I'm studying this, as I said at the beginning, there's so many different directions we could go with this. There's just lots of layers to the Bible. It's a rich book. There's so much to it. There's so many fulfillments. There's so many shadows. There's so many ways that Jesus fulfills things. But one thing that really caught my attention is the Exodus is where God's people were set free, right? Passover time, they were literally rescued from slavery in Egypt. And then if you were to count seven weeks from that, what happens? You've got Exodus chapter 19 and 20. It's the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And when I was studying that this week, I was like, is that just like one of those weird things that the Jewish rabbis say that's not really true, right? But I went and I read it. We can flip over to Exodus chapter 19. It's actually in the text. It's in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. So flip over to Exodus chapter 19. We'll look at seven weeks of Exodus. This coincides the same time in the calendar with Pentecost, the festival of weeks. Fifty days from the Passover and first fruits season. So Exodus chapter 19, it's page 60. If you just flip back a few pages in the Black Bibles. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, I'm not smart enough to understand all this calendar stuff, but as I added it up, this, this coincides. This season coincides with the season of Pentecost. And so Jewish people, when they celebrate Pentecost, when they celebrate the festival, festival of weeks, they always have a reading of the law. So chapter 19 of Exodus is where God is setting them up for the giving of the law. And then chapter 20 is where we have the Ten Commandments. So it's an important section in the book of Exodus. And it's seven weeks into their freedom. Remember, God has set them free. And then he says, now I'm going to give you commands so you can live as if you're free. Right? We talk about this a lot. In Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, God says, I've rescued you. I've saved you. Now obey me. We see this pattern that comes again and again. And it's important to see the sameness between the Old Testament salvation, then obedience, the New Testament salvation, then obedience. We don't obey to get saved. We obey because he saved us, because we love him, because we trust him. So Exodus 19 says, all right, count these days out. Then they come to the wilderness of Sinai. Skip down to verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a phrase that comes up again and again in the New Testament. And God says, because I've saved you, now I've adopted you, you are this special people. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're my treasured possession. Something God does to us by faith in Christ in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what he's saying is, all you have to do is obey my word. All you have to do is do what I say, and then you'll be this treasured special possession. So the end game of obedience is the same, right? 
We're just getting there by different routes. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. Verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. So what is this about? This is about a mountain, God speaking to the people, giving his word. Okay? You tracking with me? Let's skip down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So I want you to get the vibe here. It's like thunder, lightning, scary, God speaking. Okay? That's what's happening. God is coming to his people. God is providing for his people. God is speaking to his people. Now, I want you to try to make a connection here between Pentecost and God giving the law. I've already shown you that it happens at the same time, but I want you to think about some of the stuff we've studied in the past. What's the connection between God giving bread to his people and God giving his word to his people? Can you think of any connections there? I don't want to force it on you, okay? God says, and Jesus speaks this to the devil during the temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so there is this alignment, right? God says, I'm, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to rescue you, and then I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to save you, and then I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you my word. If you eat it, if you digest it, if you take it in, it will be good for you. You will live. You'll have life. You'll be productive. You'll be healthy. So a, a big application here is, are you eating? Are you consuming? Are you chewing on God's Word? Are you taking it in? Do you see it as important? Do you believe what Jesus said, that man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, that God's Word is that important in our life? Do you believe that? I struggle to believe that. Many days, I want food more than I want God's Word. I'll just admit that. Say that out loud. And as God's Spirit changes my heart, as I see more and more God's kindness to me in Christ, that Jesus died for me, that He rose from the dead, more and more my heart is melted. And I'm like, no, I need, I need Him even more than the snack, right? Like, He's more important. And that's a lifelong change, transformation that God is working in our life. Let me finish with chapter 20. I said already, chapter 20 is where the law is given, Ten Commandments, and there God makes it very specific. I saved you, now obey me. I saved you, now obey me. Same uh, pattern we have in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we're also told by James that when we sin, it's actually a lure and an enticement. It's a trap of our own sin nature. And so we see this really interesting thing. When we sin and we don't do God, what God tells us, it's not because God is bad. It's because we're bad, right? <laughs> like the problem is us. And God comes back to this in Hebrews chapter 8. He's like, just to be clear, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is it's the same moral law. God is giving us the same commands like, be nice, love God, love people, obey me. 
The difference is in how it's carried out. In the New Covenant, God gives us His Spirit. In the Old Covenant, God speaks His Word, and He's like, all right, what are you going to do with this? And the problem is the people. Hebrews 8 says the difference is the people. The people say, no, I don't want it. So we're going to see this illustrated at the end of Exodus 20, verse 18. Skip down to the bottom of Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You speak to us, but don't let God speak to us anymore. We will die. We get this mixed up. We have two fundamental postures. We either see God as the source of life. I need you. I'm hungry for you. You are gracious. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or we see him as a messenger of death. I don't want to be near you. You just want to ruin my fun. You just want to tear, tear up my life. Don't speak to me or I'm going to die. And so a good question to ask is, what's your fundamental posture towards God? Who is God to you? How do you see him? What's the posture? Is it a, a grace-shaped posture? Or is it just one of death like the Israelites? No, we don't want to talk to him. We're going to die. I, I grabbed a picture of a, a trap. It's like a wolf trap or a bear trap. Um, again, James 1 is very clear. James 1.14 Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So it it comes from our own desires. It's our own sinful nature. That's the problem. Don't be deceived, brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. There's no variation, no shadow due to change. Of his own will, we saw this last week, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. By God's grace, he gives us life in Christ. Do you trust him or are you running from him? I really want to appeal to you to trust him. The universal human posture, the way we're born, is in Adam. In Adam. Father Adam, Mother Eve, that didn't trust God. And said, no, we don't trust you. We want to do life on our own. We all live that way. We're all like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, that say, no, we don't want to talk to God. It'll kill us. We want to do our own thing. The only thing that can change that is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. If you've heard the story, if you've seen what he's done, if you believe in Jesus, that will change your life. That will change your heart. You'll begin to believe that he's good. You'll begin to want to obey him. I was talking to someone before the earlier service about this crazy reality that in every culture, there are laws, there are moral commands that God gives us that we're like, I can see this one being moral, but this other one I'm not so sure about. In our culture right now, sexual immorality is one of those where we just struggle with it. We're, we're bending, right? Like we're wanting to say, I don't know if it's that important. And we struggle in that area. And so when we look at these areas where God says one thing and our culture says another thing, we have to recognize, number one, that often we're thinking about it intuitively. We're, we're feeling, right? We're not actually evaluating. We're just like, well, my culture taught me that this is no big deal, so it's no big deal, right? And that's just kind of built in to us. But when we look at Jesus and see that Jesus died for us, that he gave his life for us, that he loves us, that he's pursuing us, 
then that changes our whole posture. Then we don't look at God's law and go, oh, it's, it's trying to kill me. We look at it and go, okay, well, I, I don't fully understand it, but I know God is gracious and I can trust him. And our, and our posture has now changed. It's a different direction. So application-wise, I would say, number one, change your posture towards God, right? See that he's gracious. See that he loves you and he's not just a messenger of death. Number two, actually obey his law. Like, do what he says. It's good for you, right? He says in Exodus, if my people obey me, there'll be this special, incredible kingdom of priests, right? Like, we'll be superheroes. If we obey God, we'll be amazing. It'll be so good. There's so much blessing in that, in obedience. And the New Testament says, the only way we can get there is through Jesus. The only way we can get there is through Jesus. We can't just do it on our own to get God's attention. We have to see that he's given himself to us in Christ. Um, the whole book of Galatians talks about this contrast between law and gospel. You can't get there through the law. You have to go through the gospel if you want to obey the law. So if you just go straight to the law, you're going to fail. You're going to recognize, I, I can't measure up. But if you go through the gospel, he'll change your heart. He'll begin to write the law on your heart and change you from the inside out. Instead of the law on Sinai being given from above, the Spirit works it within your heart as you believe and trust Jesus. So that's this major contrast. It comes up again and again. I already talked about Hebrews 8. All of Galatians sets this up. Are you going to rely on the law? Or are you going to rely on the Spirit? If you're filled with the Spirit, you're actually going to do good things. You're going to love people. You're going to bless other people. You're going to actually fulfill the law by not trusting in the law, but trusting in Jesus. Then you'll fulfill the law. A couple of case studies of what this looks like. If you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with anger, what does this look like? Well, number one, obey, right? So it's always okay to just say, stop it, right? Like I can say that. Stop being angry. Stop yelling at people. Build some patterns in your life that help you. But recognize that if you don't work on the root issue of your posture towards God, of recognizing that he's not pouring his wrath out on you, but he's pouring out grace through Jesus, if you don't work through that, then you'll never really find any forward progress in your struggle with anger. So yeah, like put some boundaries around your life, count to 10, stop drinking so much caffeine, right? Like there are practical things you can do, but recognize those practical things will never be enough if you don't recognize the grace that God has for you in Jesus. Your heart has to change also. Porn is an issue many people struggle with or sadly don't struggle with because they don't even care. They just think it's no big deal. But again, sexual immorality, God says, is a sin that will kill you. We see these sins. We think, oh, it's not hurting anybody. No big deal. No, it will kill you. Peter says it wages war on your soul. It's destroying you. So again, take steps. You know, put speed bumps in front of your sin. Put a filter on your phone. Get accountability. Spend the $15 to get a good filter, right? Like take some steps to stop. But recognize that you've got to deal with your heart issues. If you don't deal with the heart issues, you won't make long-term progress. Fundamentally, we have to have a different posture. We, we need to not be like the Israelites that are like, don't let God speak to us because he just wants to kill me. No, we have to go through Jesus and say, he loves me. He loves me. He's died for me. He's going to change my life. Okay, third point. Seven weeks of resurrection. Seven weeks of resurrection. We'll skip way forward to the New Testament the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. It stands for the Acts of the Apostles. This is like the stuff the Apostles did. 
after Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. It's the most famous New Testament passage about Pentecost or the Festival of Weeks. So Acts chapter 2, this is seven weeks into the resurrection. So remember last week we learned that on the Feast of first fruits, right after Passover, that's when Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, and then seven weeks later, Pentecost, we've got this alignment here. It all goes together. The Holy Spirit comes down. God gives his word on a mountain again, but it comes through the Holy Spirit. It's the same as Sinai, but it's different. Okay, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see sameness and difference. Seven weeks of resurrection. Um, let's read Acts chapter 2. It's on page 910 if you've got one of those black Bibles. Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. Starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Does that sound familiar? Loud noise. It's kind of scary. People are going to freak out. It's just like Sinai. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. We got fire. We got rushing wind. We got a storm. We got fire coming down on Mount Zion. It goes on in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So speaking in other tongues literally means they're beginning to speak in other languages. So I want you to see sameness and difference, right? Sameness. We've got an important mountain of God. We've got the date of Pentecost. We've got God coming down and speaking to his people. In one, we've got the fire and the scariness and the voice of God being external. Here at Pentecost in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, we've got the fire and it's scary and the rushing wind, but it's coming down on individuals. And the Holy Spirit is coming into them. And what's happening? They're now speaking God's word as well. It's immediately multiplying. Do you see the difference? You see it's the same. But it's different. On Mount Sinai, the word was external. God's like, here you go. Obey me. People are like, nope, not going to do it. In the New Testament, because of the work of Jesus Christ, his word comes down and it comes down into their hearts. It's the fulfillment of Hebrews chapter 8. The law is written on their hearts. The new covenant that's prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's no longer external to us and it's over there and I can't achieve it. It's now inside me because of what Jesus has done. And another thing that was really interesting, I was reading uh, one of these Jewish authors, a Jews for Jesus book about Pentecost this week, uh, which I recommend, but it'll blow your mind because there's like too much, right? But one thing I thought was really helpful is he was saying, we often get caught up with the special effects and we miss the story, right? That was so good, right? Because Because you've probably heard the word Pentecost before in another form. Have you heard the word Pentecostalism? Have you ever heard that phrase before? That's a tribe of Christians that that tend to make a really big deal about speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages. I don't want to condemn that. Our kind of Christianity, we're like, God can do whatever God wants to do. We're not going to stop God from doing anything, right? If God wants to make us speak in tongues or special languages, he can do that. But we tend to be a little cautious and be like, that doesn't seem to be the ordinary everyday experience of most Christians, right? Doesn't seem to be normal, and that's okay. And so I thought it was really interesting how this author uncovered this. He said, we get caught up, Christians debate the special effects, and we skip over the story. What's the story? The story is 
people are professing the mighty works of God. That's the story. And that gets picked up by Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians 9, he's like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. If I need to speak Greek, I'll speak Greek. If I need to speak Jewish, I'll speak Jewish, right? If I need to be strong, I'll be strong. Or weak, I'll be weak. I want to speak the good news of Jesus to people. I want to enter into their world. Chapter 14, he says, when you gather in your worship services, make sure the clear proclamation of the word is the thing that you're about. You want people to understand. That's the point. It's like going to a movie and all you can talk about are the special effects. And people are like, well, what was the story? You're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what the story was. Here the story is God comes down and he's going to communicate through his people. He's going to speak through you. That's the real miracle. The real miracle is that I would actually love God and do what he says and tell people about it, right? Like that's a miracle. And if God wants to do that supernaturally through different languages, great. He may call you to go to language school for five years. And then you can tell people in another language. It doesn't really matter if it takes one minute or five years. The point is to tell the mighty works of God. That's the goal. That's where we're trying to get to. So we'll see this unfold. Verse 5. He says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. A lot of scholars like to say this is actually a reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? In the Tower of Babel, humans were like, we want to do our own thing and make a name for us. We want to speak our name. God was like, all right, this is out of control. I'm going to scatter your languages. I got to slow you down a little bit with this sin because it's, it's getting too far. Now all this is being reversed and now people understand each other. Again, all the nations under heaven, verse 6, at the sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed. They were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's the story. Every tongue and tribe hearing, believing, trusting in the mighty works of God. That's the story. That's what we want to be about. We want to tell people about Jesus, the mighty works of God. That's Jesus, God's rescuing, gracious act of salvation. That's why we set aside 10% of our funds to other ministries outside of our church. Global Outreach, partners in evangelistic ministries here in Clean, mostly people overseas that speak other languages. Most of our people have had to go to language school. None of them have so far had the supernatural gift of speaking that language. Well, we're just going to keep moving forward. We're going to tell everybody we can tell. We want the whole world to know. That's what's going on here. That's what the church is doing. That's the story. God's moving out and telling all people his mighty works. He wants everybody to know. He wants everyone to come to him. And so applicationally, we can say, am I, am I talking about the mighty works of God? Because we're going to see Peter say, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Joel. The rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the men, the women, everybody's going to talk about Jesus. Everybody's going to proclaim the mighty works of God. That's where this text goes. Verse 12 says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others mocked, saying, They're filled with new wine. They're drunk. Peter stands up and gives his first sermon. 3,000 people are saved. Peter starts off with like, Hey, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to get drunk, right? 
I wish he had just said, we're not into that, right? But he's like, it's too early in the morning to get drunk. He goes on and he says, this is the fulfillment of Joel. Joel promised that a day was coming when all people would proclaim the good news of God's mighty works. And he ends with this in verse, where is it? 21. Verse 21 is so key. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on Yahweh will be saved. Everyone who calls out to Jesus will be saved. It's that simple. He has accomplished this mighty work for you. Will you call out to him? Say, save me. Help me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I grabbed a picture of uh, microphones here to kind of try to communicate this idea of like the message going out, right? That's the story here. No longer is God communicating his word and people are like running from him, right? That was the story of Sinai. We don't want to hear his word. It's too much. Now God's word is coming down. People are loving it. They're owning it and they're broadcasting it to others. They're speaking to others. And that's what we're about. It's interesting because we're in an age now where we all are broadcasters. To go back to the special effects theme, we got, we got great special effects. Like I've got this tool here where I can broadcast all over the world at any moment. I can say whatever I want to say. I can even translate with this thing into other languages pretty well, right? Question is, is I, am I telling the story of the mighty works of God or the story of Dave? Are we telling the mighty works of God or are we telling other things? Because we're better at telling than we've ever been. We've got more technology and more special effects than ever. Are we telling the story of Jesus? I think that's an important question for us to ask. Um, Two steps that I think are helpful as we think through how to do this. One is being relational, actually knowing people. That really helps, right? You may not have the gift of tongues. You may not know other languages, but you can get to know people one-on-one. You can care about your neighbors. You can take time for the people you work with. As you understand them, you're going to be better able to speak the truth to them. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist in the 60s that said it this way, if I have one hour to share the gospel with someone, I'm going to spend 55 minutes asking questions. And then in five minutes, I can share the story. The story is very simple of God's grace, of Jesus dying for us, of the simple ability of trusting, calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, trusting in his resurrection power. But I want to get to know people. And so that's a really helpful thing for us. Take time, love people, serve people, pray for people. Um, Another phrase I like to use by Tim Keller, he says the best way to get better at telling people about Jesus is to do it badly, right? What does that mean? That means practice. Don't do it badly on purpose. It just means like, don't be scared. You got the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you. Tell people about Jesus and then I'll ask you a question and you're going to not know the answer and that's okay. Guess what? I've devoted my entire adult life to having all the answers, and I still don't have all the answers, okay? People ask me questions. I'm like, I don't know. I'll have to pray about that. I'll go read my Bible. I'll study some more. Maybe I can have an answer for you. But just speak of the mighty works of God. Talk to him about what God is doing. And then secondly, um, I don't know how to say this. (laughs) I have the note. I don't want to say it that way. Suffer for Jesus. Suffer for Jesus you're already going to suffer. Like we live in a world of suffering. Suffer for Jesus. When people see you suffering, which is going to happen, unless you just hide everything, if you're honest at all, people will see you suffering. 
They'll see you suffering through broken relationships, through cancer, uh, through pain. You'll have a limp. You'll be going through emotional difficulties. People will see you suffering. You will suffer in this world. And you can hope in Jesus. And when people see you hoping in Jesus through your suffering, then that is an open door to the gospel. This comes up again and again in the New Testament. Like so much, I'm not even going to quote a verse. It's just all over the New Testament. It's one of those things we like to skip over because it sounds painful. Because it is. You will suffer. And if you trust in Jesus while you suffer, people will hear the good news of Jesus. That's a language where they will hear the mighty works of God proclaimed. Jars of clay is my favorite imagery for that. Chris was just talking to me about that this morning. So it's like, it's forefront in my mind, right? Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're cracked. We're broken. If we were awesome, people wouldn't be able to see Jesus. But because we're broken and we're limping, people can see us trusting in Jesus. We can see that he's the treasure, not, not us, not our life being so perfect. Okay, we'll wrap up here. We need to end it. The Feast of Weeks, there's way more. Study more. Go read. There's a lot of great materials out there. Juice for Jesus has done some good books, and there's other uh, books, a book by a guy named Nadler that I read, uh, a Jewish Messianic Christian. Um, a lot of good stuff out there. Like I said, the Bible is multi-layered, and all of it points to Jesus. So there's just so much more we could talk about. Um, but essentially, the Feast of Weeks is a countdown. It's a countdown. It's counting down from God's rescue to God's further provision. And there's still more to come, right? We have more feasts that we're going to study. Terrell's actually going to preach for us next week as we go uh, to visit our kids next week. There's more to come, but we've got this countdown, this waiting, this counting of the days. And so I want you to think about where we are at this time in history. All these other things have passed, but we're still counting down. We still look forward to the return of Christ. That's what we're counting down to now. Unfortunately, we can't put an app on our phone and say, okay, there's 700 days, and then Jesus comes back, right? Jesus doesn't give that. He's real clear in Matthew 24 and 25. It's not for you, it's not for me to know the days and the times. But stay faithful. Count down the days. Jesus says the temptation is because we don't know how many days. We don't know if it's 49 or 50 days. We don't know how long it's going to take. There's part of us that's going to want to drift and think he's not coming back. And so he gives three parables in Matthew 24 and 25. He says, don't think I'm not coming back. Stay ready. Know that I'm coming back. Treat the other servants well. Stay ready to party and celebrate. Invest the talents that you've been given because you believe I'm coming back. You believe the good news of the gospel that I love you. Titus talks about it this way. He says, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the return of Jesus. Titus 2 Verse 13 says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are counting down the days, and we don't know if he's coming this afternoon, next week, or in a thousand years. For a lot of us, it feels like he's coming soon, but we don't know. The job we've been given is to stay faithful, to count the days. And Titus explains what that looks like here. He says, the grace of God has appeared. It's already happened. He's given us his grace. He brings salvation for all people. And that grace, that salvation trains us to throw away ungodliness and worldly passions, to live controlled, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. It's his grace that teaches us to obey. 
And so now we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, that's that echo. It's what he said in Exodus 19. Hey, if you obey me, you'll be my special possession. And now we understand the only way we can get there is through Jesus because the grace that has appeared in Jesus, we are now his special possession. We are his people. And we can glorify him as we count the days until his return. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you clearly showed that by sending Jesus. Help us to walk in gospel obedience. Help us to let the grace of God train us to renounce our own ways and to obey you. We pray that this would be true in such a way that you would be glorified supernaturally in our lives. People would look at us and say, yeah, that is a cracked and broken jar of clay, yet they love Jesus. Jesus is their hope. We pray that you would be honored in this place and in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.